Good afternoon, everyone, or good evening, as the case may be. In here, it's difficult to tell. I'm Martin Duberman, the director of CLAGS, the Center for Lesbian and Gay Studies, here at the CUNY Graduate School. It's my pleasure today, on behalf of CLAGS, and also on behalf of our co-sponsor, the Pan American Center, to welcome you to this evening, which is a program on gay men's literature. This is the second part of a two-part event. The first part, lesbian literature, took place in the same auditorium back on February 19th. That evening proved a roaring, if somewhat eccentric, success for those of you who may have been here. And I think tonight, judging from the large turnout again, that uh, the evening will be no less of a success and perhaps no less eccentric. <laughs> Certainly, uh, it will be a success if judged by the quality of the participants. All that I'm going to do is introduce the two moderators of the two panels to you, uh, Michael Warner and Robert Reed Farr, and I will leave it to them <clears throat> to introduce at the appropriate time the members of their respective panels. First, Michael Warner, who's an associate professor of English. Michael's in the middle. Uh, at Rutgers University in New Brunswick. Uh, I don't know anybody who has better titles for their articles or books than Michael does. For example, one of his articles is called Thoreau's Bottom. <laughs> And another is called My Pentecostal Boyhood. Uh, his new work uh, is an edited volume which will come out, I think he said in October, and that's entitled Fear of a Queer Planet. The second moderator of the second panel is Robert Reed Farr. He teaches cultural studies and African-American literature at the City College of New York. Robert has been an active member of the New York-based Black Gay Writers Collective, Other Countries, and has written on race and sexuality for, among others, the African American Review, Fuse Magazine, which is from Toronto, Callaloo, and also Radical America. To give you some idea of the shape of the evening, the first panel will run for approximately an hour, and we hope to save uh, an additional half hour after that for questions from the audience. I regret to announce, if you haven't gathered this already from your programs, that James Purdy, who was scheduled to appear on this first panel, uh, had at the last minute uh, been forced to cancel. He does, however, send his regrets. I think we still have plenty of genius to go around, however. <laughs> After the first panel is over, there will be a half-hour break from 7 to 7.30, roughly, during which we've arranged to have sandwiches sold in the lobby right outside at the back of the auditorium. We, uh, for the February 19th event, we had a very elaborate sort of picnic dinner, uh, but we took a total bath on that, and we were doing it at cost. 
And so tonight, we have decided to retreat to a simpler gastronomic format. Uh, but we did feel we had to provide you with some opportunity to buy some food because this building does close fairly promptly at 10, and so we only had an, a half hour to allow for dinner. The second panel will run from about 7.30 to 9, uh, again followed hopefully by some questions, and those in turn followed by a reception of wine and chips, uh, again in the outer lobby behind the auditorium. Uh, just, just one or two other brief words. Clegg's prides itself on holding all of its public events free of charge in order to be as inclusive as possible. But contrary to rumor, we are not rolling in money. We don't, for example, receive a single penny in direct costs from the CUNY Graduate School itself. Uh, some foundations, and especially a few of the gay ones, like the Rappaport Foundation, have been kind to us. But nonetheless, we have to raise our funds the laborious nickel and dime way. So if any of you did not yet have a chance to put a few dollars in the donation box on the table outside, we would be very appreciative if you could. Uh, we may decide to pass the box before the second panel. We did that at the lesbian literature event and, and uh, got an astounding amount of money for the first time. So we may just do it again. First, we'll count to see what's out there and then decide. <laughs> Uh, also, there's a pad out on that same table. Uh, if you are not on the Clegg's mailing list and would like to be, uh, just sign that list, and that way you will automatically get notice of all of our future events and activities. One final word, be sure to vote in the school board elections on May 4th. And now I'll turn the first panel over to Michael Warner. Thank you, Marty. The organizers of this event very thoughtfully wrote out for me and for Robert Reed for a long list of questions, which, out of orneriness, I'm going to ignore. Um, but the, they did have some wonderful questions on them, like, um, what 19th century novel would you do you wish you had written, which I was going to modify to something like, what 19th century novel would you like to rewrite as a gay novel? You know, Jake Eyre or House of Seven Gay Boys. Um, <laughs> So if we run out of other questions, we can go back to those. But I thought that actually I would begin by asking five or six questions to get the conversation rolling, and then we would uh, turn it over to questions from the audience. I notice we don't have microphones this time, so you'll have to holler, but uh, that we do? There will be one on the other end of this room. Okay, great. Thank you very much. Um, so let me introduce our four panelists, and then we'll start with some questions. Um, on my far left is, uh, your right, is Sanford Friedman, who's the author of the novel Totem Pole, as well as A Haunted Woman, Still Life, and Rip Van Winkle. Um, he received an award in literature from the American Academy and Institute of Arts and Letters in 1984. He conducts a creative writing workshop for SAGE uh, and is currently working on a novel about Beethoven. On my immediate left is um, Chip Delaney, Samuel Delaney, who has written uh, more novels than you can shake a stick at, uh, and a brilliant uh, autobiography called Motion of Light on Water, 
He has a new novel called They Fly at Saron coming out in July from Incunabula Press. On my right is Allen Ginsberg. If you need an introduction for Allen Ginsberg, you're in the room by mistake. Um, <laughs> you can get his, uh, his collected poems through 1980, and you can also get uh, poems 1980 to 1985 in a volume called White Shroud. And on my far right is Edmund White, who again probably needs no introduction. He's the author of several novels, including Forgetting Elena, Nocturnes for the King of Naples, uh, Boys on Story, Caracol, The Beautiful Room is Empty, has a forthcoming biography of Genet. Anything else you want me to puff? No? OK. Um, so let's just begin, and then uh, uh, we'll open it up for questions soon. Um, I want to address the first question to each of the four panelists, and then I'll have more focused ones. The first one is simply um, look at this panel and this audience, uh, because this event represents something new in the past decade or so, the development of a self-conscious gay audience for literature. Publishers can treat it as a market. Academics can teach courses on gay studies. And younger gay writers can take this audience for granted as their audience. But when, you, when the four panelists here began writing, this kind of self-conscious gay audience didn't exist or wasn't concretized this way. So my question is, has the development of a self-conscious gay audience changed your sense of writing? What have been the advantages or disadvantages, either for you or for younger writers? Let's begin on my right. Ed, do you want to take this first? Well, I think that um, uh, a lot of the early gay novels, including my own early unpublished novels, were uh, addressed as an apology to straight people. I mean, in other words, I think oftentimes one was trying to say, oh, please try to understand us. It, they, many times these books were pleas for compassion. And, they, and in terms of the way they treated gay life, they were very primary. That is, they would um, uh, assume that people knew nothing about uh, gay life and that you had to sort of start at the very beginning and explain everything. And for me, I think when I wrote States of Desire, which I wrote it, I think, mainly in 1979, for me that was a sort of turning point in that um, I suddenly thought how boring it is to read. That was a nonfiction book about uh, li gay life in America. And, uh, and I thought to myself how boring it is to always be reading these uh, books about gay life that start that explain where Fire Island is, that tell you what a blowjob is. I don't know. But I mean, <laughs> it seemed to me that, uh, that I would just pretend that everybody already knew all that and, that, and go on with it, you know. And, and, and I think that was the thing where I just assumed there was already an audience and, uh, and that, that it was a sophisticated audience that uh, had had almost the same experience I had had and that that was very liberating for me. And I think just in terms of the writing itself, I felt like it produced some of my better writing. Helen, do you have anything to say about this here? Yeah. Uh, the method that I began with was after Whitman, uh, candor, the word he uses in the preface to the 1855 edition of Leaves of Grass, that he hoped for future writers to feature candor or the characteristic of candor as their, their mode in America. Uh, so I wasn't writing necessarily uh, uh, to be reveal myself as gay, though that was part of it, but there was a larger humanity that women suggested 
they covered a whole broad spectrum of things. It was not only like a social radicalism from my background, uh, parentage, communist socialism, which was just as far out, let us say, in the 50s as being gay in, in, during the McCarthyite years. Uh, interest in marijuana and uh, drug reform uh, from, so that to be a dope fiend, uh, at least gay people were not considered total fiends. Uh, or they were, they were queer, but they weren't fiends. There's a difference between a fiend and a queer. And I was a, not only a queer, but I was a dope fiend in addition to being Jewish. <laughs> so my interests were in, in being who I was, Jewish, being gay or queer in those days, uh, a pot smoker and someone who'd experienced a little heroin and knew the difference between the mythology that the government laid out on it officially and the corruption of the narcs who were actually selling at that time and always have been selling and have been maintaining a black market in, uh, uh, in drugs along with, uh, uh, with the rise of organized crime in America. Uh, interestingly, due to the uh, negligence or, or fear or blackmail of J. Edgar Hoover, our most famous gay author, <laughs> 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 authority. <laughs> Uh, that's something people haven't figured out yet. You know, the consequence of J. Edgar Hoover being in the closet in terms of the destruction of the American left. Uh, uh, because everybody says, why is there no left in America? Well, so I was interested in that whole complex. The left, gay, uh, 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 drugs, uh, but it was more basic humanity out of Whitman or even before that out of Whitman saying, do I contradict myself? Very well, I contradict myself. I am large, I contain multitudes, which means straight and gay. Or, 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 or the old poetic theme of, of Keats, uh, uh, negative capability, the ability to maintain opposite ideas in the mind without an irritable reaching after fact and reason. And the key there is irritable. So a sense of general openness or tolerance or to comprendre, to pardonner, understanding everything, pardoning everything. There's an old, old bohemian attitude. So I would say my, my attitude was more bohemian with a little provocateur element because uh, realizing, uh, in writing how, realizing that if I said, who got fucked in the ass by handsome sailors, and instead of completing the sentence by saying, and screamed with pain, said, and screamed with joy, <laughs> I think that actually would be telling you the truth and at the same time reverse a stereotype. So I was interested in that. But I wasn't primarily interested in just being a queer writer. It was more the obvious advantage of the development historically is that there is a very definite group within the audience that cheers you on whenever you say anything interesting on a gay theme. The disadvantage of that, you can, you can be compartmentalized. Or this guy is a dope fiend, this guy's a beatnik, or this guy's gay. So there are advantages and disadvantages, but the advantages obviously outweigh anything that be any disadvantage because now you have people conscious of themselves, candid, which is what Whitman asked for. Well, on the one hand, of course, um, having uh, an openly gay audience is certainly a wonderful thing, and it, it's something that uh, um, just one's initial gut 
feeling is a, is a very positive one. And yet there are um, sort of strange little paradoxical things that fall out of that. And one um, that I've noticed is almost, and I think it goes along with the openly gay audience, and that is the complete, almost complete destruction or obliteration uh, of some earlier um, homosexual literary genres. Um, and um, I was reading a, a, a fascinating and, and, and by and large pretty good book by a guy named Thomas Yinling called Hart Crane and the Homosexual Text. Uh, and a, a very interesting book it is, and it, it, it talks about Crane's uh, poetic reputation and how he's been marginalized because of his homosexuality, and he traces out very clearly. But one of the things that became very clear to me that the author of the book didn't realize is that certain of Crane's poems are in a very specific um, homosexual genre. And I say homosexual rather than gay because, uh, you know, the, the, the gay sense, you know, the, the notion of gay didn't exist at that particular time. Uh, and these were uh, one, of the, one of these subgenres, a subgenre of these, these homosexual genres, for instance, uh, is the love poem uh, that goes to a great deal of rhetorical energy not to specify uh, the sex of um, whom it's, it's talking about. And at a certain point, um, uh, you realize that the only conceivable reason that the author would have gone to that much rhetorical energy not to specify it is because uh, it's, it's a same-sex situation. Now, the, the thing that characterized these genres uh, in general was that the homosexuality could be read out of them at a moment's notice. Uh, as soon as it became convenient for either a gay critic or a straight critic, uh, or it became necessary to read it out, um, so that you can't, you know, uh, so that a literalist reading could always erase the homosexuality, and this was this was a necessary gesture. And the writers went to uh, exerted great craft and uh, and skill in order to do this, um, but. Uh, poems like Crane's Voyages, um, Harbor Dawn is another one. Uh, and at the same, these could be very powerful. I know when I was a 16-year-old in 1958 and I was, I was reading through the bridge for the first time and I started reading Harbor Dawn and I got about halfway through it. And again, I noticed that the, um, the object of desire had not been specified, although, um, you know, um, blessed were you and my arms murmurously around you lay and a forest shudders in your hair. Uh, and I suddenly realized, wow, uh, it, it hit me across the bridge of the nose like somebody went... <laughs> You know, and I began to weep. I realized this has got to be a man that he's talking about. Uh, they weren't subtle genres, and that, that's the whole point. They, they were not terribly subtle, uh, but they were so constructed that you know, at any point, if you wanted to deny the homosexuality, and it was very easy to do, uh, but they were also, you know, it was very easy to point out. And um, as I said, looking at, Mr., Mr., looking at Mr. Yingling's book, he doesn't seem to realize, I think perhaps being a critic who's a little younger and who has grown up um, sort of post-Stonewall when things are open, when you don't have to have this, this doubling uh, of the text in some way, um, some of these are, are getting lost. And there, there were other versions of them, too, uh, besides the one where you don't specify the, uh, the, the sex of the uh, object of desire. Another one um, would be the place where you, it's a world in which homosexuality doesn't exist, but it's the only explanation for what is going on. You know, again, it's not stated. And all of these, the homosexuality was implied, but it was real clearly implied so that um, any bright adolescent, you know, isolated in East Podunk, you know, could read this and realize suddenly, you know, could get that little blow across the bridge of the nose. Um, so these are going out. Um, 
The problem with trying to read some of these texts by in current, um, according to sort of current political um, structures, is the fact that they already figure. Uh, something about the gay, you know, the, the the homosexual world of the time, and what they figure is the silence that was enforced around homosexual uh, homosexuality at the time, and that's what they figure forth and figure forth very clearly, and that was very poignant, uh, and to realize it. Um, so this is, you know, so you know, you win a few and you lose a few. Uh, so um, I think we've won a great deal more than we've lost, but I think it's a good idea to remember that these other forms were there at one time and not to not to get twisted out of shape, you know, uh, as it were, uh, when uh, you know, um, you know, when 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 encountering them again. Yes. Thank you. Um, I guess. When I started writing Totem Pole, uh, I was merely trying to sort something out for myself. Um, I think uh, that book could fall into the category Edmund has spoken of already as a plea for um, understanding. Possibly it could be. Um, When the book was finally... uh, taken by a publisher, um, the editor-in-chief at Dutton said to me, why did you write this book? And I said very sincerely, and it now will seem a little maudlin perhaps, uh, that I just didn't want anyone ever again to have to go through that kind of an isolated uh, sense of being special and peculiar and uh, that there was no one else in the world who had this experience. And uh, at that time, it seemed uh, that that was the, the historical basis of my own uh, queerness. Um, now, I, I'm afraid I'm sort of in a time warp because I don't have any sense whatever uh, of an audience out there waiting for what I write. (laughs) Um, That is not your fault, that's mine. Um, But uh, I go on in my strange way. I guess I felt that that first book took care of the subject, at least for me. And uh, I I went about other other business and other problems uh, in terms of writing and themes. And only one of my other books has even uh, half, half of it is dealing with uh, gay uh, matters. Um, so uh, I, I don't feel uh, somehow uh, related yet to the audience that is sitting here. Um, Tafford, I'd like to address the next question to you mainly, um, although I'd also invite the others to kick in on this. Um, and the reference to Tom Yingling made me think to ask this next because Tom died last summer. I wonder if you could say a little bit about what you think AIDS has meant not just for gay men in general or gay culture in general, but for gay writing in particular. Well, I think it really is the demarcation line. Uh, it is what... Uh, leaves me on one side of a demarcation line and the next panel on the other. Uh, in 
1965, when uh, Totem Pole came out, uh, thank God there was, no, there was no AIDS crisis, and Stonewall hadn't happened yet. Uh, at the end of that summer, 65, the, my book came out, and the Manachine Society had a little um, party in September, and I was invited to that. And the guest speaker was Paul Goodman. Um, I hope to goodness that Paul Goodman is a name known to some of you still as a really distinguished gay writer. And I hope uh, he has continued to be read. Um, somebody in the audience said to Paul Goodman when he spoke, um, Mr. Goodman, in your view, what is it that a queer man today has most to fear? And Paul Goodman thought for a moment and said, the hydrogen bomb. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, that, uh, that, the answer to that question would be very different indeed today, and we all know the answer to that question. In fact, I don't think today the question would be asked. Um, and so AIDS has, has changed uh, writing and, and the world so radically gay life. Um, when, when my book uh, started, when I started uh, writing it, I published various sections of it. And as a result of those sections being published, the book was bought by Lippincott. And uh, they signed it up and gave me an advance. And then uh, they had read only the childhood sections. And when later I turned in the whole manuscript, the uh, head of the company said, uh, and I quote, this book is unfit to print. Um, that certainly could not happen today. Uh, so we've come quite a way. It then took, was rejected by 30, more than 30 publishers. Uh, and when it was finally printed, the book um, was allowed in the New York Public Library. One single copy was in the reading room, 314. There were no copies in any branch library, uh, and no copy could circulate. Uh, the book was banned in Australia. The book was bought by Penguin Books uh, in England for paperback, and the main distributor, uh, William Smith and Sons, refused to handle it. So the book was never printed in paperback. Um, uh, that's background and a different time. Uh, I feel very, very lucky in a way to be part of the generation I am of, insofar as I have not had a single very close friend die of AIDS. Um, there is a strange disadvantage to that. Um, you of the next generation have uh, been brought together in a sense of camaraderie 
and, and bonded um, direction and directedness that uh, I simply didn't experience and didn't have. And um, I, I feel uh, strangely left out no matter what I, what, uh, I might do in relation to people with AIDS. Um, uh, it is a real um, difference in experience and kind. I think that uh, enough for the moment. Does anyone else want to say anything about this? I think that yeah, I mean AIDS and and literature can I mean AIDS can be discussed obviously as a social phenomenon, but I think if it's seen strictly as a as an artistic phenomenon, it uh, is something that it seems to me that particularly in fiction that before the advent of AIDS, most fiction was uh, most gay fiction was about coming out. Mm-hmm. That was the great right. story, and every novel more or less was about that. And now that's not the case anymore. And it seems to me that uh, again, I don't want to sound frivolous because. I would give every single one of those books to save one life. I mean, to me, there's no question of what the priorities are. But just looking at it strictly artistically, it seems to me that there has been a deepening of themes and that, uh, and that, and that when writers write knowing that either they themselves have only a limited amount of time to finish their work or if they write about people who are in that situation, it, leads, it lends a kind of tragic... Um, Importance and density to the writing, which I think was uh, missing before. There is one classic I've seen. Uh, I forgot the title. The Ward, uh, Ward Nine, I guess, by by Tim Dulgos, who died of AIDS. Who wrote an amazing poem on his deathbed, uh, which to me is a great a great threnody. And a great poem, and uh, with with all the intensity and uh, uh, depth of uh, realization, uh, and it's an amazingly uh, generous poem, incidentally, and open, uh, not uh, self-pitying, not fearful at all, uh, almost uh, cheer- cheerfully facing death, uh, as if we will live or we will die, but both are good. Chip, were you going to say anything? Let me, uh, let me address the next question to you, Ed, because um, you spent so much of your time in London and Paris. We've, this is billed as an evening of gay men's literature, but we're really thinking about an American context here. And so far we've talked about the rise of a gay audience and about AIDS, um, in which, both of which in many ways are differently mapped in other national contexts. I wonder if you could say something about how the phenomenon of uh, gay literature or AIDS literature, for that matter, might be different in other national contexts. Well, it's very interesting to, for me to have had the same book come out in different countries and to see the different reactions. I think that in France, uh, obviously, there are a lot of well-known writers who are gay and who write about being gay, and their books are not only reviewed, but oftentimes receive the major prizes. I mean, some of the most important writers in France in the last 20 years have been gay and they've written about gay things. However, one time a gay magazine, a gay literary magazine called Mask, now defunct in France, asked me if I was a gay writer and I said yes and they said you're the first person who's ever said yes to that question that we've interviewed. (laughs) And uh, 
And I think that's sometimes perceived as, as though the French are very closety, but I don't think that's the case. It's that, they, it's that they just construe the whole thing in a different way. For instance, they think to be identified as a gay writer is a, is a marginalization and a loss of freedom. And they'll say, why would I, who am writing to the general public and selling hundreds of thousands of copies of my books and influencing people, want to restrict my public to 5,000 people or 10,000? I mean, that would be ridiculous. So, but it's a very different kind of intellectual discourse that is going on there, and it's a much more unified society. I think America is exactly the opposite. I mean, that is, we have nothing but uh, um, these small groups. I mean, just as our politics is conducted through lobbies and through special interest groups, in the same way, if you enter an American bookshop, everything is arranged according to women's studies, gay studies, and so on. And and no person ever goes into the other, uh, no white person goes to the black studies, no, you know, I mean, so... I mean, more or less, unfortunately. And I think what, what so, so, so you get the, these little chapels that are very isolated one from another. England is somewhere in the middle of the two. And, uh, and I think that, for instance, I've had, uh, to go back to my original um, remark, I've had the same book come out in France where it would be reviewed uh, for its literary values and not ever once mentioned in the review that the characters are all gay. Which seems odd to me. Uh, it seems. On the other hand, I've had books that come out in America that were reviewed almost exclusively in the gay press and ignored by the straight press. And then in England, um, something in between the two, but basically more toward the French model. In other words, I think there still is a uh, a way in which um, uh, gay writers are. Um, I mean, somebody like Alan Hollinghurst is a is a national celebrity and is a famous writer known to everyone, and people would feel disgraced if they hadn't read the Swimming Pool Library. Uh, so I think that it's a very different kind of model, and I think that uh, it's it, it's difficult to say, oh, we should be more like them, because I think the whole society is an entity, and you can't push, you can't take one feature of that society and transplant it into another one. I think that may have to do with two different views of what identity is and how it functions. I think um, uh, we have a, a kind of practical uh, sense in the United States that um, even if I say, well, I'm not a gay writer, I'm a, a human writer who, you know, who just happens to be gay, this doesn't stop anybody from calling you a faggot. You know, uh, not not one iota. You know, and uh, so that uh, it's it's net. You know, we we have a sense. I think, I, or at least I have a sense that um, what you know, I'm going to be called something anyway. You know, so therefore I might as well uh, be aware of this, acknowledge it, um, put some of my eggs in the basket with other people who are being called by the same name, and see if we can you know band together and do something about our situation. Uh, which is, you know, which is, and, and, and as far as I'm concerned, that's all identity is. You know, that, that, that's what my gay identity is, is we're all going to be called the same name, so we better know that. Uh, and I think perhaps uh, in, in Europe, they're, they're in certain, because they are physically smaller, uh, there's a sense that uh, one's identity still may have something to do with some innate essentialist thing in oneself, um, which um, in the United States maybe we just can't afford uh, be uh, you know afford, afford that luxury of that that view of identity. 
But if I can just add one more thing, I think one of the things that has been lost, however, because of our ghettoization, yeah. is that you have figures in the past like Pasolini, like Genet, and like uh, Juan Goytisolo, who's still writing, who were gay, very openly about it, uh, open about it, wrote about gay subject matter, but also who felt that they wanted to embrace um, the defense of the th of third world people, of the poor. I mean, in other words, it seems to me that 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 one of the things I sort of regret about the politics of identity is that people no longer embrace uh, other people's causes. Uh, let me address the next question to uh, Allen Ginsberg. We know that uh, because you, you said some about the uh, personal ethic of candor that you take from Whitman. Uh, I'd like to ask a more literary, formal, stylistic version of that question. Uh, we know that some gay writing can be very square, and we also know that some straight writers have occasionally written in interesting ways. Um, but <laughs> I'm in Melville. <laughs> when he was when he was writing in queer <laughs> strains. But but it's remarkable that from Whitman to the present, um, much of the formal and stylistic innovation in American writing has come from gay and lesbian writers. Uh, the Whitman tradition is carried on by people like uh, Stein, Barnes, uh, Crane, O'Hara, and then a lot of writers of the generation represented by this panel, yourselves, uh, Burroughs, and so on. Um, can you say a little bit about what you take from Whitman? Do you identify Whitman with this kind of formal, stylistic... Uh, tradition that um, that, in a way, is the major phenomenon in American literary history. The literary history is written all wrong, as though modernism is the big mm -hmm. thing. But you could just as easily say that queerism is the big thing if you were thinking about the way Whitman combines a personal ethic with a, with a, an attitude toward formal and, and linguistic innovation. The um from Whitman, uh, the lineage that I see is from Whitman through Williams, and what is that? which is a, a, an opening of the form of poetry and an expansion of the uh, stanza form from pure lyric or, or lyric imitation and blank verse to uh, a more expansive, physically expansive verse line, more in, uh, uh, adjusted to the actual breath of the speaker. And it further uh, uh, experiments in that line by William Carlos Williams, who also wrote a play called Many Loves, uh, who was interested in um, how do we talk and what do we really say when we're talking to each other intensive, intensely and frankly. And uh, it's, again, the, the, it's the candor of idiom that was interesting to Robert Creeley and the Black Mountain Poets, to Kerouac, that is the, the, the actual reproduction of real, real talk or use of our own uh, idiosyncratic and vernacular rhythms and diction. So now if you're going to use the idiosyncratic and idiomatic and vernacular rhythms and diction and then go even deeper and use idiomatic thought forms as, as uh, Gertrude Stein and the surrealists and Dadaists did and as was continued on through Kerouac, if you're actually uh, trying to reproduce the sequence of thought forms in your in your in your mind, or writing, writing as writing your mind, catching yourself thinking, observing what's vivid, noticing what you notice, 
and, and uh, writing intimately in the way that you would either think or, or speak such thoughts, including dreams, then naturally you come onto the eros and your sexual uh, hard-ons in the, in the course of thinking during the day or thinking during writing. And so naturally that would be revealed. So it still would be in the realm of Whitman's prophecy of candor, but it would also be in the realm of the modernist exploration of the nature of the mind or the texture of the mind or texture of consciousness and in some attempt to reproduce that texture in writing. It's all summed up as writing the mind, writing your mind, or first thought, best thought, to make another slogan. First thought being primordial thought, actual flash on your mind. So it still meets the, it still is connected with the, the modernist method of discontinuity, since the mind is somewhat discontinuous. Surprise mind, since you never know what you're going to think next. Um, outrageousness, since your thought may be totally in violation of any contemporary ethic. Uh, uh, inscrutability. <laughs> since uh, neither you nor anybody else knows what you're going to think next, so it's completely inscrutable what you'll come on. Uh, so, so those are still within the realm of modernism, uh, including the discontinuity, as well as in the old naturalistic tradition of Williams and uh, Karl Rakosi and Charles Reznikov, who wrote very down-home as to what their everyday life was like. Thanks. Does anyone else on the panel want to add to this, Chip? Yeah, and yet um, reasons that one poet turns to another. Um, there, there are, is the thematic one. I, I was talking about Crane earlier, and uh, Crane was a great uh, lover of Whitman. Mm-hmm. Uh, got himself into a great deal of trouble by insisting on being a great lover of Whitman when it was not terribly fashionable, and, and people like Ivor Winters. Uh, and Alan Tate um, sort of turned on him for that. But um, it's not in, it was not entirely just a formal interest. I mean, uh, in the, I think it's Cuddy Sark, which is one of the, section of the uh, sections of the bridge, um, a, another one of these um, dying homosexual genres, which is about an unsuccessful late-night pickup in which homosexuality is never mentioned. Um, but uh, the, um, the epigraph, that he uses to that is a couple of, of, of phrases from Whitman's passage to India, which I think is, is something like, you know, weathered the, weathered the tide, the cape regained, the voyage done. And then two lines later in the poem, um, there is the couplet, and the elder brother melts with love into the arms of the younger. Um, you know, now, it seems to me it's fairly clear that that's probably what struck Crane about the passage in the first place. Um, he probably expected knowledgeable people to be able to go and supply the missing little, missing little section, which, of course, is this, 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 this epigraph that he's put onto this, um, onto this depiction of trying to pick up this sailor in a bar, and the sailor finally isn't having anyone and staggers off down, down Bowery. Uh, so, that, um, so, so that although the, although the formal um, concerns are there, there's, there's clearly a, a, a thematic brotherliness, dare one say, as well. Great. I have one more question, and then I noticed that the microphone is up. So uh, after this next question, we'll turn things over to the floor. Um, and this I want to address to Chip Delaney. Um, we've been talking about gay literature as though we know what gay is. Of course, we could re-describe gay in a lot of ways, queer or alternative or candid. 
Um, so I thought I would ask, you know, what are the boundaries um, that we've set up around gay, or if you prefer, how should we open up our thinking about gay writing to uh, avoid what you've called in our last conversation the heterosexualization of gay culture? <laughs> well, I, I'm a great believer in, in writing about what you actually do, uh, and um, which would, would seem to be a very easy thing to do. But we tend, I think, to turn to other literary models even when we, we try to narrate our own life. Uh, I found all through my life that I've done that. Um, so I think the only thing that you can finally do at a certain point is is start critiquing those models in some way. You know, when you see um, the the literary representation of um, something that you know something that you do, you say, well, how is this not like the way I do it? Uh, I'm in a particularly um, odd position because although I'm gay and I've thought of myself as uh, gay or queer um, since I was you know, 12 or 13 years old, uh, I've also been married. Uh, I have a, a, an absolutely wonderful 19-year-old daughter, uh, and um, this puts me, in a, puts me in a kind of marginal position within gay society, um, you know, uh, where it is. Um, and I remember um, um, many years ago there was a, a television show that had that featured a gay couple with a daughter, you know, and um, my my then lover and I would sit and watch this thing and look at each other and say, you know, who are these guys? You know, it's just it's not us, you know. Um, and uh, by being able to, you know, by being able to specify why, um, you know, why your life is not like the sitcom uh, that is supposed to be representing it, um, that's a good way. You know, that's a good way to start knowing what you want to put down. Uh, or what you want to use in, in your own in your own story. Uh, to me, it always goes back to criticism, you know, to the criticism of other literary models, um, one way or the other. Uh, and um, I try my best in, in in that particular way. Do you want to say anything else about this? No. Okay. Should we take questions from from the floor? Are there any? Yeah. Could you just stand at the microphone, please, and say who you are and and who you're addressing the question to. Okay. Oh, my name's Dan Jacobson. Um, I have a question to address to all the panelists. You are, as the first part of the evening, you, are, you represent uh, history and the older generation. <laughs> I feel, as an older gay man, I feel that I can say this without reproach. Uh, I would like to know, since uh, gay culture is largely thought of as youth culture, and the, um, the focus is often on themes having to do with uh, things that happen in youth, coming out, um, cruising, and um, other themes. I wonder, what does an older gay writer have to say on the themes of gay culture? Who wants to take that? <laughs> um, the basic thing is that... Uh, Something that Samuel Delaney said, who does he write for bright adolescents isolated in East Podunk? I think maybe all of us share that urge, as Whitman did, to talk to the tan-faced prairie boy, to give and receive communication uh, to the younger generation, definitely, uh, to, to seek out lovers in the younger generation and to keep uh, abreast of their grunge and, the, and their... And their 
So what we have to say is our own experience in, as love as, as love makers and as artists in in how to uh, how to how to, how to communicate actually and how to seek out lovers and also how to encourage younger people to sleep with older people as, when they get old. <laughs> so, so that when they uh, when they become senior citizens like myself they'll have some good karma to inherit <laughs> it's dope it's chilling um, do we have any more questions? Yes? Come up to the microphone, please. Uh, my question is for Professor Ginsburg. Um, it's not clear to me what is specifically queer about the formal innovations that you are tracing from Whitman. I, I wonder if it's there's a connection to be queer. made. It's, okay. it, it leads to uh, manifesting the mind completely, all, all aspects of the mind. I said some things, you know, like a pot smoker or a Jewish or a queer... Right. But it's simply that, that uh, because you're tracing the actual movement of your mind, then, then anything that comes up, including your lusts and loves and, and uh, gay uh, uh, desires, they'll be uh, exposed frankly or manifested frankly. And even beyond that, not merely uh, uh, being a senior citizen or being queer, the, the fact, the realization that the universe does not even exist will also be manif manifested. The fact that you have no identity, much less a queer identity, or that all identity is transitory and therefore without inherent or essential permanence, and therefore phantom-like, like a dream, and therefore you finally realize that the universe exists and does not exist, both at once at the same time without contradiction. <laughs> Much less being queer. <laughs> yes? Um, maybe if you just holler. To whom is this addressed? I'll talk fast on that and then turn it over because I've been talking a bit much. But I think one common sensibility which Samuel Delaney has noticed in Hart Crane is the element of longing, longing for union, uh, best exampled in the, in the great rhapsody at the end of the bridge, Atlantis, which, which to me always seemed to me like a great homosexual rhapsody or almost a piece of, of vocalized cocksucking. The, the, when he comes to, oh, answerer of all. It's the same devotional bhakti. It's the same devotional bhakti. Like worship, longing and worship is, I think, maybe a common element. No? <laughs> <laughs> no. 
I, I just since we're 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 talking on on this on the the subject, I'd like to put in a, a plug for older men. Another reason that uh, I have always felt somewhat marginal to the gay community, um, as I have said many times in many living rooms with many groups of people, uh, if you ever hear a story about me getting involved with a 16 or 17-year-old boy, you know it will be a crock of shit. You know? uh, if, however, you hear about me getting involved with a uh, 55 to 65-year-old garage mechanic, where there is smoke, there is fire. You know? uh, and... Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, that will probably be true. You know, I, I will I will admit to that one beforehand. The, um, uh, one of the things that I think that 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 is part of the, and I think this may have something to do with that. What the, the question that, that Michael first asked me about the heterosexualization of gay culture is uh, that um, one of the glories of it is the variety of desires that are within it, uh, and um, the the. The insti- there, there, there's a, this constant institutional pressure to straight these desires into certain, you know, into certain ways that constantly leaves people out, and then somebody like you know, Bear Magazine starts up for you know those people you know put off on the side or what have you. Um, but um, I'm the, still waiting for the great shrimping novel. There you go. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and uh, you know, and so the the, vari- the the variety of desires I think is what we are about. Um, you know, and um, I don't think we should lose sight of that in the midst of this incredible institutional pressure to, to focus it all on one particular type of person or, or types of people in general, you know, because I think it's more complex than that. Hmm. Yes, in the middle back there. Okay, well, what I, what I probably should have said to make things clear is simply the population and the population figures involved. Um, and I think uh, when, is, when the dare ones, I, I may be totally talking through my hat with this, but I, it's something that just is bubbling around on the top of my head. I think when the population figures are small enough and the, and the, the, literate, um, the literate level of the society is small enough, um, it, it encourages philosophical essentialism. Uh, it, it encourages the notion, you know, essentialism can, can thrive. Um, when uh, you have a large enough population and, you know, uh, the United States is large enough now, and, and this is a situation that has actually come up, you can, you know, you can have five guys standing at a bar and they all turn around and who are they? They're five novelists. And they've all written novels that have sold more than a million copies, and not one of them has ever heard the other person's name. You know, the, you know this this is this actually happens in this country. Uh, you know, uh, be, uh, because the pop, simply because the population is so wide. Uh, when you have that larger population, um, 
literary theme works in a very different manner uh, from the way it works in a a 19th century sized nation. Um, And certain philosophical notions, certain notions uh, of of continuity and tradition also get, get much get far more diversified. And when this happens, uh, I think um, you are more at the mercy of what you're called. Uh, You're more at the mercy of compartments and compartmentalization, simply because um, there is so much that we've got to organize it some way. So that that the, 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 the shelves that say science fiction over here, Black studies over here, women's studies over there, uh, they're not tiny little shelves. They're all very, very big shelves. Uh, and if um, so, and if all this were, were completely mixed up with everything else, you'd have you really have a, lar- a large problem finding it. You know, so that these so that these various um, um, nominal compartments um, really do have a use when the society gets to a certain size. Yeah, you know, and, it, and it's, it's purely a, it's purely a matter of quanti- you know, a, a quantitative uh, uh, situation changing the quality of how you have to organize things. But you make it sound like it's a problem of classification, and it seems to me that that even if it's a, a problem to find uh, a writer who writes about several different groups, nevertheless, if a writer is supposed to be a kind of emblem of of human consciousness or of the sense of human responsibility or goodness. Mm-hmm. For instance, uh, that that when you have a writer like Jean Genet, who was ve- who was intimately involved with the cause of the Black Panthers right. and the Palestinians, uh, and the causes of wor- immigrant workers and prisoners. I mean, those were his main causes. Gay rights was something he thought about, but only in a on a secondary level. Uh, it seems to me that then you get an emblem of a good person, yeah. who who is actually interested in in the oppressed and the marginal, no matter where they are, and who lend, in his case, he was very famous, so he lend, lent his enormous prestige to these various causes. That seems to me admirable. And it seems Absolutely. to me something we're losing because of the politics of identity. I mean, even Genet was very, though he came earlier uh, in the history of these things than the point we're at now, nevertheless, even he was very aware of the exigencies of the politics of identity and always insist on the fact that the Black Panthers had invited him to America and the Palestinians had invited him and moreover that he spent two years with the Palestinians before he made a single utterance about them, which is very unlike most French intellectuals who spend a weekend and then write right. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I, 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 think, I think, Edmund, that we're almost totally in agreement. Um, the, if, um, the if I have a statement to be a statement to make about the politics of identity is one that um, the notion that there is such a thing as a real transcendental grounded fundamental identity I don't think there is any such object we don't have any mm-hmm. um, and uh, so that all identity questions are merely strategic merely provisional merely for the nonce that's I mean that's the basic thrust of what I'm saying uh, but if you happen to have a I'm saying you do have to acknowledge the provision Visional situation that you are in at a particular time, and we happen to be in a particular time where I think it's a good idea to acknowledge all sorts of identities. I'm, a, you know, not only am I a gay writer, I'm a science fiction writer, I'm a black writer, um, you know, and I got to juggle all of these things. Yeah. And um, and sometimes I let them drop spectacularly all over the floor, you know. Um, but I try not to feel guilty about it when I do. It's part of the provisional nature of the you know yeah. of the situation. Yes, in the front row. Hi, my name is Kurt Paris. Uh, I'm interested in um, 
the pre-Stonewall era, were there, have you done some comparative, this is directed at all the panelists, um, have you done any comparative analysis of um, uh, black um, gay authors, pre-Stonewall, and Latino authors? I'm wondering, you know, I, I got what you were saying when you compared the line and stuff. I'm sure that they've existed, you know, within, within these other um, ethnicities. The question for those of you who are sitting in the back of the room is uh, directed to all the panelists, and it is about black and Latino authors before Stonewall. Uh, and Chip, since you were one, uh, maybe you can begin. <laughs> well, th this is what I mean. Let, let, let us hope I can catch this ball as it comes down. <laughs> uh, well, you know, of course, the, I, would, I would say the first person that one thinks of, of course, would be James Baldwin. Uh, and um, um, that's, that's, of course, the first name that, that, that comes to mind. Um, one of the problems of having to juggle all these balls is that I don't have a whole bunch of bibliographies you know, that I can, I can pull out. Um, um, ask me tomorrow, and I'll make three phone calls and see what I can put together. I'll give you uh, some more. Wallace Thurman. Oh, yes. Of course. Oh, yes. And uh, Bruce Nugent. Bruce Nugent. Uh, and, uh, and Langston Hughes. Um, you know, I mean, um, so that um, um, you know, you again, it's it's a matter of hmm? and Petri. and and Petri. Yes, there we go. Uh, can anybody else think of think of any uh, count, County, County Cullen? Of of, yes, yeah. Hmm? Were you inspired? I'm sure you were inspired. Uh, yes, <laughs> was I? The question was, was I inspired by any of them? Yes, I was. James Baldwin was simply one of the most exciting voices in my adolescence. Um, that um, you know, who was around. You know, actually, can I jump in with a question here? Uh, the mention of Baldwin, I think, brings up an interesting subject because we were talking earlier about a Whitmanian tradition of queer outrageousness. Baldwin, in some ways, represents a different kind of tradition of. of uh, moral, responsibilizing leadership, and that was really the, the way he pitched his address to uh, a human audience. Do, do you think that that places him outside of the, the tradition you were describing earlier, Alan, or does anyone no, else want to come in on no, this? No, because part of that tradition was the recovery of a rainbow coalition yeah. uh, with a view of defensive rights of all people. I think uh, one thing that about Baldwin is that he had I think trouble integrating the gay subject matter with black subject matter, and only in his last book, just above my head, was he able to do it. Not because, in another country. Well, yes, all right, but but for instance, it's, it's remarkable that the most important gay book he wrote, Giovanni's Room, all the characters are white. Right. And in the first paragraph, the main character says, "My blonde hair gleams." Yes. Yeah. But the, the, you've got to remember that that, that, I, that that paragraph, as a kid, used to worry me. And then I read it again as an adult. And here's this thing about you know, I'm my blonde hair gleams. I look in the mirror, my reflection rather like an arrow. My ancestors uh, pillaged the continent. I shall be drunk by morning. Is the next line. <laughs> <laughs> yes? I'd like to return the question to what you were talking about earlier about black and Latino writers because I don't think it's exclusively a problem of bibliography. I think there's a certain kind of silencing Absolutely. going on. Sure. And, and it's a question also about integrating 
identities, integrating a gay identity, a black identity, a Latino identity, because I think for many writers, there's a certain, if you're black and you're writing also gay fiction, or you're, I, I, here's a great example, Bell Hooks, who is black and writes feminist theory and race theory, gets shelved as a race theorist and not as a feminist theorist very often, something which I've read her write about and she says she hates, and I think there's a certain kind of classification that goes on that way, and I, I'm wondering what kind of what kind of silencing goes on that way, what kind yeah. of erasures go on, especially um, for earlier writers. The we've lost a whole bunch of people who are writing black gay fiction, Latino gay fiction, simply because they can't be associated that way, or because they were, in fact, they were writing such things, and, and because of being black and gay, even more silenced and erased than, than a white gay writer. Can people in the back hear this question? No. no? The, the question is about is about why have uh, black and Latino gay writers been silenced? Is it about the compartmentalization that makes each person one but not another? Uh, is that a fair summary of the question? Um, and wh- what are the mechanisms that make it uh, a task to retrieve those writers? Who wants? No one want to take this one up. David Bergman has written a very interesting essay about this in, in the book Gaiety Transfigured. I don't know if you know about that essay. You do. And I mean, it is obviously a fascinating subject that can be explored a long time. It, it, I mean, with, with Baldwin, whom he talks about in that essay, it does seem to me that, for instance, in uh, Just Above My Head, that you can see Baldwin struggling with the problem of how to address a heterosexual black reader and, with, and to give full respect to the black family as an institution, and within that family, introduce a gay character. So that, for instance, the, the, the novel is narrated by the heterosexual brother about his gay gospel-singing uh, brother. And uh, you, I mean, it feels like a very elaborate and I think somewhat fraught uh, strategy on his part to keep together an audience that could very easily split apart. So I think part of the, 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 the discussion has to be about not just how these writers were marginalized by critics or, or by people who, who run bookshops, but also how they're marginalized by their very audience. Yes. by the restraints on sexuality. He was very vague and very general in every case of sexual scene. In Totem Pole, he described a three-year-old boy who went into the bathroom and his father was shaving. His father was shaving from a waist down nude. And the boy would reach up and play with his father's testicles. In, in, in 1993, that strikes me as high risk. How high risk? <laughs> I think the child's impulse is to reach toward the father's testicles. I don't think he plays with them. (laughs) (laughs) However, (laughs) 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 when when, uh, I was told the... uh, 
the panel heading Heroes Looking Back. Uh, that seemed to me a, a mouthful. Um, uh, and then I thought about it. Uh, I think if, if um, courage is part of heroics, uh, Totem Pole was a very courageous act. Uh, that book took a, a great deal of courage to write. Um, and strangely, at the time it came out, um, Hilton Kramer did a double review of City and Pillar, which was reissued at the same time, and Totem Pole. And he was uh, quite critical of Vidal's book and Surprised. praising of mine. Um, I don't know whether for that reason. Um, I, I've, I've sat here tonight feeling very much an outsider. <laughs> and that is, I think, because um, I, I uh, am interested um, in certain themes that uh, have nothing whatever, I, I think, uh, to do with gay life, really. I, I set out to explore in the novel I'm working on about Beethoven a relationship between him and his nephew, and I discover, uh, to my surprise, that it really hasn't too much to do with gay matters per se. It has something to do with fathers and sons and the need to... Uh, uh, continue through generations and so on. Um, so I feel uh, that after Totem Pole, uh, I, I did my coming out novel and I did it as honestly and truthfully as I could and um, those that is not my subject matter anymore and so I felt a bit uh, alien here tonight and also uh, in terms of age, that question earlier, I came here uh, thinking only about The Master Builder, the play by Henrik Ibsen, uh, and that character, Solness, uh, who is very caught up in a generational struggle, an old man against uh, the youth. <laughs> and um, I don't feel against the youth, but I feel very much an old man. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so that's all. Yes? Uh, yes. Increasingly, the gay community has become a very vocal political community. Uh, and criticism of writing can be as political as it is based upon any literary merit. Do you feel that now there is more? Criticism based upon what a person writes, and is that putting constraints upon writers in terms of how they express themselves based upon that political viewpoint? Do you want to take this? Uh, I'd like to just do a tangent on that. Um, the political correctness criteria was introduced by the right wing in 1982 by in a. Uh, um, a, a, a pseudo-literateur named uh, Dinesh D'Souza in a, um, an examination of the NEA grants to poetry in which he picked out all the dirty words 
given in, in various poems by uh, Ann Waldman or myself or Peter Orlovsky or Ted Berrigan or many, many, a whole phalanx of writers from St. Mark's and from the West Coast and from the Europa Institute and denounced it as being politically incorrect. <laughs> and that whole notion of political correctness is a right-wing deal, not a left-wing deal. The left-wing deal was sort of a self a joke on oneself rather than, rather than a really serious problem. And the problem of political correctness in speech is enforced by the FCC so that my poetry is banned from the air from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. at the moment. And under, <laughs> under a, a, a new law put in, it would be banned from 8, 6 a.m. to midnight. <laughs> and under the Helms Law from 24 hours a day. <laughs> so when we're talking about constraints, I think first put the emphasis where it begins with the purveyors of alcohol, Coors Beer, and, and the killer drug tobacco fighting against uh, 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 free speech and, and, um, and a liberality of expression and, and demanding a political correctness up to the point of actually withdrawing government funds for writings which they consider politically incorrect. Just as a sideline before we get into the left swing on it. <laughs> Please, to address this, the rest of the question. Yeah. Um, well, you know, in, we, you have to remember that aesthetic criticisms are just as limiting as political criticism. I mean, if somebody says, you know, and you take it seriously, this writer is using too many adjectives, you know, then you are then constrained, if you, you take that criticism to heart, to write with less adjectives. Um, so that, um, you know, one of the things that criticism does as we internalize it is to constrain us. Um, this is, I don't know whether this is necessarily a bad thing uh, because one of the things that aesthetics is about is, is doing things um, under constraints um, economically, you know, using less to do more with. I mean, that, that's one big part of, of um, you know, of any aesthetic enterprise. Um, I, I also wanted to say something um, to, to Sanford uh, about um, the notion of isolation. Um, um, and I don't know whether, I, this is not to make light of anything that you say at all, but uh, it's always struck me that, that writers by, almost by definition, tend to be moderately gregarious people who through some personality you know, quirk of our own find ourselves spending an awful lot of time by ourselves. Yeah. Um, and, and it's also certainly true that as one gets older, one spends more and more time by oneself. Uh, and um, looking at that as a, as a projection, I mean, at, at, at having just turned 51 a couple of days ago, that it's not, um, it's a, uh, you know, it, 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 to something to project on, I don't know. You know, uh, it's, it's worrying. It's worrisome, you know, to me, myself. Uh, because my, my job as a writer uh, demands I spend so much time my, by myself, and I am a fairly gregarious person. Um, but um, I wonder, I, I see the, the, the support that I feel from not just a gay audience, but also a science fiction audience and also a black audience. Um, um, it's, it doesn't make up for the isolation, for me, in any way, shape, or form, but it does, um, it, it adds a certain, I don't know, it adds a, a a belief in the society that one is always writing about, that society seems richer somehow, uh, more coherent, um, something more close to that unalienated uh, um, uh, 
sort of utopia that we were always talking about. People always used to talk about it, ancient Greece, where you know society and art were a little closer together because the audience is more interested. Um, and um, that seems to me a, a good thing, um, despite the very real um, isolation that goes along with the, goes along with the job. I don't, I don't know whether that that touches what you're talking about at all, or, or whether it's different. <laughs> Did you, no. Actually, way in the back. Uh, I was wondering if I could go back to the issue of gay sensibility and style and art and life and how in, in your novels, as I read them as a lay person um, that is not a professor of literature, um, some of them seem to be written in what I think of as a plain style and some of them in a Baroque style. I wonder whether this is a reflection of some difference in the subject matter, although in all four cases I'm thinking of, uh, there is a gay subject matter, and I wonder why the style changes. Um, I, I think that sometimes I find I, I, I explore f- a period of my life or certain feelings I've had first in a fantasy form, and then I write the more direct and simple autobiographical form. It's as though I need to explore the territory in a in what you're in a more baroque or imaginative or fantastic way first. So that, for instance, I think that I wrote a novel called Nocturnes for the King of Naples, which uh, is not autobiographical, except it's very much about uh, a young boy who falls in love with a much older man and has these very uh, um, and projects a lot of, of both love and rebellion uh, against uh, this man. And having written that, which was a purely imaginative construct in this Baroque style, I then was able to write um, uh, A Boy's Own Story, which was a much more straightforward uh, autobiographical account about my actual relationship with my real father. But it, I, I think it's, a, it's sort of almost like a kind of elaborate throat clearing or something before I can get to the... Or you could say, I mean, I think Auden said that no one should write about their childhood because that's their literary capital and you shouldn't waste it. Uh, and, and that it should somehow find a kind of more devious way of expressing itself through all of your work. And I think that, in a sense, I... I um, um, spend the interest before I spend the capital. <laughs> yes? I, I just wanted to say that um, uh, to, to Sanford Friedman, um, I, I was kind of moved. I think that um, I think more writers should, should write about um, the children maybe in the shower or something, you know, within reasonable boundaries. <laughs> yeah. I mean, as long as there are clear boundaries and, and, and discuss this, there is a romanticism. I, I can I can sense that. And I, I just wanted to let you know that maybe that the maybe entertaining that doesn't make you feel as isolated. Oh. <laughs> I, I thank you very much. <laughs> um, I think we have time for about two more questions. And this. Uh, my name is Ramon St. Pierre. I teach in a piece of hell in the South Bronx in high school. And I've been very politically involved with the Children of the Rainbow curriculum. And since you are literally icons to a great many people, your voices have been silenced in many respects. And I would like to know why they were silenced and if you were offered an opportunity from any of the literary critics and the major newspapers. 
were you denied that opportunity? And where was the support that I really think a million children needed in New York City? I have one very brief comment on that, which I think people have not made use of. A lot of the, uh, the pressure has been coming from Cardinal O'Connor and the Catholic diocese here against the uh, curriculum, the rainbow curriculum and the multicultural curriculum and the multisexual curriculum. It should be remembered that Cardinal Spellman was a big old queen. <laughs> and uh, that's, uh, there's a great deal of information on that in Nicholas von Hoffman's biography of Roy Cohen, Citizen Cohen, and I think that should be maybe circulated a little bit more and questions asked of the Catholic diocese here, why are they so silent about that and how come they're being so an and homophobic when their strongest and most powerful leader was a closet queen, and but a very, uh, uh, a very, uh, very well-known closet queen who had chorus boys from One Touch of Venus and who had orgies on Roy Cohen's yacht. I, t I, don't, I haven't seen that in the New York Times. I haven't seen anybody questioning the entire position of the church on the matter, much less ancient popes who were gay, much less Father Ritter or, or, or the entire panoply of, of uh, persecuted gay Catholic priests. So I think that would be one way of approaching the problem, of, of tackling the church head-on on that. I'm sorry, no, I think said, Cardinal said, Spellman. Said, but I think that Cardinal O'Connor should be challenged on the on this suppression of gay history in in the occupant of his own chair. <laughs> this, I, let me just add one more thing about this. Martin Duberman mentioned at the beginning of this session the school board elections coming up on May 4th. You may or may not know that the Catholic Archdiocese has endorsed Pat Robertson's slate of school board candidates. This is extremely no. dangerous, and this, yes... And this is why we all have to get out there and vote, because the politicians, the system does not want to recognize the interest of non-parents in the educational system, and we have to combat this rhetoric at a very fundamental level. Um, yes. In connection with what you're saying now, I have made at least 12 telephone calls finding out how do I find out who I vote for and against. And I call the 13th Street Center, I, I've called myriad groups there, and they say, gee, it's a good idea. I don't know. I hope you have good luck finding out. How do we find out? There's a report in, the, in last Wednesday's issue of the Village Voice. The one is still on the streets. That's a guide to the upcoming school board elections. I, I do think we should get back to the subject of the panel, although this is very important, uh, because our time is running out. There's a gentleman back here that's been waiting to ask a question for a long time.
of gay men, transsexual men, with any uh, real authenticity, whether they deserve that kind of uh, leisure, or whether it's aesthetically, morally, or in any way possible, or that they should really desist. Could, do you want to put that in the form of a question? I'm certain that you are mistaken. Uh, and I base that only on uh, Flaubert's Emma Bovary, and certainly somebody will be able to do it, some genius. Yeah, you, you know, one's job as a writer is to follow one's imagination. And if you have an imagination that goes in that direction, then go to it. We've been hearing from a lot of boys. Do you want to ask a question back there? <laughs> Thank you. I think that has to be the last question, but do you want to, does anyone want to say anything in response to it? Well, I think, of course, each person only has so much time, and they can only do so many things. And I think, for instance, Larry Kramer had an article in The Advocate recently in which he said any gay male writer who isn't writing about AIDS is some sort of criminal. And he said Edmund White, for instance, has spent six years writing about Jean Genet, of all things. And why isn't he writing about AIDS? Well, now I am writing about AIDS in the novel that I'm working on now, but it does, it did seem to me that um, I wanted to write, uh, I, I, for instance, saw the Genet biography partly in a context of, of AIDS in the sense that I felt that, that at a time when our whole culture uh, runs the risk of becoming reduced to a single medical issue, that it was important to remind people that there were these great cultural figures. I mean, he only died in 86, so it's not like ancient history. Who, who had very full lives, a very full political uh, agenda, and who was in no way concerned with AIDS. I, I mean, I found myself as somebody who's positive reading the biography, uh, the wonderful um, uh, Ellis biography of Oscar Wilde was, a, was, a, was a very inspiring for me to be reminded of this great cultural figure. So, I mean, I agree, if I lived in New York, I would hope that I might be, be uh, concerned with this issue. but. Uh, but I do think that each person only can do what they can do. And, uh, and I think it's fair enough to say that all of our work should be judged in a political context, although we can't always submit to another person's political agenda. 
I'm, I'm terribly sorry, but we've run over our time, and we have to take a dinner break so that we can start the next panel. Marty, is it half an hour? We'll try to, we'll try to start the next panel in half an hour.